Hello and welcome to the Profiles podcast presented by LL Flooring. I'm Tom Kreitler, and on this show, we profile experts in the building, design, and remodeling community. The goal is to learn their best tips and tricks and solutions so we can all improve our own businesses. And today, I am thrilled to speak with an accomplished designer who literally started with building blocks as a child. And even though we all grew up playing with that favorite childhood toy, I don't think too many of us use blocks to build a cantilevered multifamily building complete with apartments, common areas, and green space. It's a great story that paved the way for a young but extremely successful architecture and design firm. So now, let's get to work. Greg Newman is a partner with Way Architecture and Design Partners. He's based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Greg's company's vision is to not only design beautiful and practical spaces through cost-effective solutions that serve and exceed a client's vision and goals, but to never forget that service is at the heart of a client's expectations. Greg, welcome to the Profiles Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure to have you. You know, I like the idea that you guys put service first, or service certainly at the top, when you're working with your customers. That's not always the case with architects, is it? No, and, and even with you know a lot of design firms where you're either a service firm or a high-end ar- architectural design firm, and that kind of got blurred you know through the 90s and, and 2000s. So when you say you were a service firm, what does that mean? Why couldn't an architectural firm be in the business of service as well? What- it, it meant you're more, I believe it meant you're more of a commodity, Okay. where you, you weren't known for you know, like a high-end deliverable, as it were. Yeah, you're generic. <laughs> That's so sad, because I think design is undervalued in this country, but we'll get to that later. So I, I do like the way that you put that first. And um, let's talk a little bit about, first, how you guys got into this. You and your business partner, Michael, were friends for over 20 years before starting Way about four years ago. So you're fairly young company. But I guess my first question is, are you guys still friends? It's kind of hard to to work with your friend, right? <laughs> so no, we're still friends. And uh, we've actually gotten closer over the years. So, you know, through all the process of managing a firm, you know, uh, designing, marketing, producing, everything that goes with it, that's obviously can be very stressful, is stressful. But we have been able to, to maintain the friendship, grow the friendship. And uh, it's actually, I think, a testimony to, you know, our, our, our bond that, you know, extends you know, 24 plus years ago. Yeah, you know, but it's important to make that point because that's not always the case. I mean, it seems natural that when you go into business, uh, if you have a friend and you have uh, some shared goals and shared visions, it seems like, uh, hey, you know, it's a good idea to kind of try to do this together and support each other. But man, sometimes when you get into the nitty gritty and when things aren't going well, especially, or when there's a feeling that one partner is doing, not doing his or her share, you know, those friendships come under a lot of stress. So the fact that you guys have, have been through this uh, and have uh, been through the trials and tribulation and maintain that is, is good. But I think it's important to point out that that's not always the case. And so it's, it's great. Uh, it's something that we need to recognize when we go in business with our friends. Yeah, it, it, that's true. And I think, you know, having being equally yoked, I think, has a lot to, to help with that. You know, um, our, our wives are similar ages. We both have kids. We both have similar life experiences. But that's not really to say that we're identical. You know, he has different uh, strengths and weaknesses. I have different strengths and weaknesses. And, and we really are, have been able to play off those. Even as a, a small, you know, highly flexible uh, design and architectural firm, we've been able to leverage those differences. So you started in 2018 uh, with four projects. 
and you haven't been sitting on your hands. You've grown that to 132 projects in four years. That's pretty amazing. And also interesting that 55 of the projects were from repeat clients. That's, you know, that is indicative of a quality service because, you know, I think most folks, when they land on a really good professional team or, I mean, it, you know, it, it's not just limited to architecture design, right? I mean, you find a restaurant, you like it, keep going back. You find an electrician, you like it, keep hiring them when, when the services are, are needed. But the fact that your customers keep coming back to you, I mean, uh, let's see, this is like more than 40% of the projects basically are, are repeat. That's fantastic. Yeah, I, I believe that's true. And, and one of my old bosses used to always say, you know, you treat your best customer the worst, meaning they love you, they're going to come back. But the reality is you really need to treat, you know, all your customers as, as, as the best. And that's hard to do, but it just comes down to understanding, like, the timelines. And in this world of immediacy with the electronic and the emails, you know, communication so fast that everybody expects an answer like yesterday. And so we try to, you know, do the inevitable, you know, reply to a communication that day, if not by end of day, if not by the next morning, you know, don't let things ride. And, you know, that's been a focus. And, and if you're in a firm that, you know, has more of a quote unquote design center, you lose that, that service aspect. Um, we, you know, we had that issue in the past where they said, oh, that's it's taken for granted. It's expected. Well, it's really not expected. You have to make a concerted effort to focus on it, we think. Well, you've taken a wide variety of, of projects on over the years, over these few short years, four short years, uh, corporate, science and tech, uh, residential, of course, multifamily, uh, cafe and, and food service. I think I even saw uh, some beautiful photographs of a Greek bakery that you guys uh, designed. So, I mean, what a wide-ranging scope of, of work. There's probably uh, some blessings in that because, you know, business being what it is, some of these areas uh, have a, a little bit more of a setback economically than others, and you have the opportunity to move around to, to different types of, of projects. It, was that part of the design, was that sort of part of the grand plan, or is that just kind of how it happened? Well, no, that's, a, that's a great question. When we started, uh, you know, because we had different, he had different life experiences and firm experiences, and as did I, we were able to leverage those past contacts and, and like skill sets per job type. And so, you know, being a young firm, we realized, oh, my God, you know, we really can't specialize in one thing because, you know, that's, that's the noose that's, you know, going to hang any firm. So we realized we've got to be flexible and have a lot of capability. So we, we basically, you know, we didn't say yes to everything, but we really had our stable of project types that we re really wanted to start to fill. And when they came along, you know, we really made a conscious effort to, you know, give our best number as we could to really grow that kind of uh, that, that niche, as it were. Well, it seems like it served you really, really well. I wanted to talk to you about how you got started because I, I can relate to the story that you, you've told in our, in our pre-interview. You know, as a home improvement expert, I mean, I, I spent 20 years as a home inspector. I've been a builder or a contractor. I, I've been on the on the air now for 20 years answering, answering home improvement questions. People say, how did you get started? And I got started because as a young kid, I was a real pain in the neck. And some would say I still am. And to get rid of me, my parents would send me outside with a block of wood and a can of nails and a hammer and, and let me tap, tap, tap my way you know, out of their hair all day long. And so that's the story about how I got started at Home Improvement. So I was amused to read your story that you were playing around with cassettes and actually turned them into some sort of a fancy stacking cantilever design, and your dad recognized your your uh, your skill set right away. Yeah, that, that's a little embarrassing, but that's, that's the truth. So um, a lot of people don't remember what cassettes were, but they come in that little plastic cartridge. So you know, I had a bunch, and I, and I ransacked my brother's rooms, and I took all theirs, and I started playing with them 
almost like, I was like in elementary school, almost like blocks. And then I started to, you know, take one and then I put two on top and I put one on top and then two. And I basically created what I later learned was called a cantilever. And then I started to rotate them around and I got almost four feet high with this thing, which was incredible. That didn't fall over. It took me a couple of tries, but I got it stable enough. And I go, dad, check this out. This is a great tower where, you know, this can be the apartment. This can be uh, some sort of a common space with like trees on it. He goes, hey, kid, you should be a, a designer. And I always thought about it. I was like, so, yeah, never forgot it. So uh, we've talked a little bit about how you guys are differ, different than, uh, than others in this space. Your, your company, Way, uh, stands for We Are You. Seems like you always want to do what's best for the client without any sort of self-serving impulses. But a lot of firms do things correctly for the client, but others don't. And uh, you had talked about a, a story about work, once working on a laboratory project. I think this is important. Uh, you saw that, that the architect was using very expensive materials that weren't necessary. And when you brought your doubts to your boss, the reason was because they had seriously had a desire to be published. This, this impetus to be published must be awfully powerful with architects. And I never recognized that uh, until I, I, I read that statement. And it makes so much sense. So essentially, they're, in their desire to be published and to be recognized, they're spending the company's money for their own public relations benefit. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of truth to that. And like you mentioned the marketplace, you know, the, the, the world of architecture and design is filled with so many great architectural and design firms that do the right thing, both from a service standpoint, but also for a design standpoint. And Obviously, when a client comes to us of any type, right, any, whether it's institutional or residential or, you know, any, any scale, you know, they, they, they're hiring you because you have um, a skill set of professionalism and knowledge for, you know, construction, for code, for materiality. All those things come into play. And, you know, every so often, you know, you have that desire to, hey, we can do something really special here. Let's add some, something extra of whatever it is, right, a material or whatever. And... That happens on every project. You, you, you always want to inject a little extra for the client. So that's not really atypical. And in fact, if you've ever heard of uh, the famous architect Misandro, he had a phrase, you know, uh, form follows function. You know, I always thought that that was attributed to Frank Lloyd Wright, but it's not, huh? I'm going to have you check, check <laughs> on that. I'm going to rephrase that. <laughs> no, that's all right. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, let's, let's explain what that means. Let's explain what that means for those that are, that are not familiar. Okay, so yeah, form follow function basically means that uh, whatever the program is or the shape or the, the, the space that you experience, okay, within a, within a particular project is really derived from what the needs are, right? So if, if you have, let's say, like a stadium, it's shaped the way it is because of, of what's going on inside, just like a jail has all the ingredients and bars and access and, and security because of what's going on inside. So when you have a project with the materiality requirements of something and you inject something extra, right, hopefully that something extra, whatever it is, is performing something of benefit, meaning like if you have a wall covering in a hotel and you want it to be what's called a type 2, a heavy-duty, it's scrubbable, it's got an Osmer back, you can punch it with a fork, it's not going to rip with a, a hand cart going by or anything, well, that's kind of like, you know, form follows function. It's meeting an intent. But in, in this instance that you'd mentioned, it, it really struck a nerve with me. And that's actually how Way did get started, because it was, a, it was a particular type of laboratory for an institutional client. And the project was such that you do those labs, and the dollars are so precious, because you have to do so much, and the equipment can be so expensive, and mechanical systems can be so expensive. So anytime you have to do something 
you want to be cognizant of what you're doing and why. And this particular instance was the uh, selection and application of a product, which was initially cool. Don't get me wrong. It looks great. I saw it, you know, not too long ago. It looks great. But it's called uh, bluing, bluing of steel. And it's a very, very expensive process. And nor- the process of, of bluing is actually done typically on smaller parts and pieces. It's actually big in um, um, the firearm business because it's actually for weather resistance, for high abuse, you know, high caliber things. So, so is it a, the structural steel that was, was being blued for, for effect? Yes. So rather than a small part and piece, they basically put these large steel plates that were, you know, series of, of panels, probably four by eight, it's about eight feet high. Wow. But the whole assembly was 14 feet long. And by putting this, you know, this end result of a black oxide kind of a coating on it, it makes it weather resistant. Well, that's great if it was outside, but it's an inside corridor, not exposed to the weather, and it was used for signage. And I'm like, there's got to be a cheaper way to get your point across. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, good for you for, for bringing it up. But, I mean, the, the point was that in, that in that particular case, your boss was really interested in the recognition and the awards of possibly being published for this amazing design where, you know, you probably, probably still could have gotten published without using that very expensive process by finding something that was comparable in color. Yeah, and, and truly, you know, the, the balance of the interior project was dynamite. The whole thing was great, but that particular approach of spending a client's dollar kind of got to me a little bit. Well, I did some research, so here's the answer to, uh, to who uh, said form follows function, and uh, uh, it's from the Guggenheim, and the Guggenheim says that Frank Lloyd Wright worked for a guy named Louis Sullivan in his Chicago-based architecture firm, and Sullivan is known for steel frame constructions, which are considered to be some of the early skyscraper, and his famous axiom was form follows function. So I guess Lloyd, Frank Lloyd Wright you know, took that from Sullivan and as many other uh, subsequent architects did. So I knew there was a Frank Lloyd Wright connection you, there somewhere. <laughs> you are you are testing my history memory from way back when? Well, you know, I don't have much of a memory, but I do have Google. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let's talk about design and the work that you guys do as designers. I feel like design is really underrated. Can you talk about that sort of creative process? I mean, where do you start where does the design end and, and the architecture begin? I think it's very challenging often to bring a customer's vision to life because too many times customers, you know, kind of start with, uh, they don't know what they want, but they'll know it when they see it. And it's kind of, it's kind of up to you to figure all that out and, and break through uh, those, those roadblocks and, and kind of bring the whole thing to life. So how does that work? Well, you know, I, I, they, they teach you that in school about, you know, ideation and, and how to start to think outside the box. It's a, it's a skill. It's like a muscle, right? So you, you always have to be testing your own design abilities. And when you get to that particular client with whatever you're designing, you know, whether it's the widget that's a, a small detail or the bigger program as a whole, you're always designing. So to your question about when and when does it start, it doesn't start and stop. It's just It's continual. And it's a matter of dialing it up and back based upon what the program requires, you know. And that's, at some point, you know, the, the dollars have to follow in and be assessed. And that's kind of something else that, you know, is done in tandem throughout the process, both with your own empirical knowledge of the marketplace and what things could cost or, or details. Boy, that might be too an expensive approach. Maybe we try this. But there's always more than one way to accomplish your goal. And that's something that I think a lot of architects are great at. And, and designers, 
and and some maybe just go back to doing what's worked in the past and kind of just rely on you know old tried and true methods. But the point of you know design is always trying something new you know for the client. And the question is, you know how 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 can it be successful? We're talking to Greg Newman. He is a partner with Way Architecture and Design Partners based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. You know, I think that the design process itself and even the architectural process uh, is something that when you're talking about residential properties, I find something that homeowners have a difficulty in understanding the value of. I think that they wonder if they're going to have like an addition. Do they really need an architect for that when their contractor says that they can do a design build when it comes to, say, a structural repair that just happened with a family member, they started doing a kitchen and they uncovered a structural column. The contractor says, oh, we can fix that. We're just going to put a beam here and there. And I'm like, no, stop. Put down the tools and let's get an engineer to spec it out. I think that too many times folks that are, you know, maybe not at the you know level of building a lab like you did, but people that are just trying to take care of their average house don't quite understand the value that good design and good architecture brings to that project. It doesn't add cost. It actually saves cost. It, it actually does, and that's a, a very astute um, observation. A lot of people think, oh, it's something that's, you know, frivolous. You know, I, I don't need that, like you'd mentioned, but just having that kind of a professional by your side to guide you through the process that fit your particular need. Right, so you just have to do you know some research, find who's right for you, and chances are that that professional working through the design and and also probably through field verification may have uncovered potential issues just from their experience and says, hey, this there might be something buried in here, there could be an issue, or you know, and there's always the existing conditions that arise on projects, but but having someone by your side uh, that has that particular expertise and skill set, like you know, my partner is, is the architect, I'm the designer. We both bring something different to the table on a project, and having that kind of uh, that level of expertise can uh, can save the client from a lot of heartache down the road. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing that I think it brings a lot of value to and clarity to is is the bidding process because you know if you just go to a builder and say I want a new addition, they're going to spec that whole thing out their way, the way they're used to working. And not necessarily what meet what your expectations are. If you have an architect say, you know, it's going to be this big, it's going to have this kind of flooring, it's going to have this kind of lighting, it's going to have this brand fixtures and faucets, you know, now all the contractors that are going to be submitting prices for that project are literally bidding apples to apples as opposed to having dissimilar estimates that are very difficult to compare and contrast, even for a professional, let alone, you know, the average residential homeowner. Yeah, I mean that's you know spot on. Really, you know the client client wants what the client wants, and they deserve what what they want. And what we can do is, as the professionals, is basically start to put together what's almost a, like a, a bid performance specification, which is like, okay, here's here's what you want. It's you know it's product A, whatever that is for lighting or or some sort of millwork or, or finish, right? But then through the bid process, you can say, well, we we realize that. You know, we're bidding apples to apples, and so we want all the contractors to bid the same thing. We want the client to, to get what they want. But with that comes dollars, right, that are real, that have to be spent somewhere, and, and maybe too much at the end of the day, based upon a whole host of reasons. So at that point, it's great when you, you have someone like an architect or a designer on your side to say, you know what, you like X, but we can offer, we, we offer and recommend that you look at C, D, and E, because these are comparable with lesser price points, but you can still, at the end of the day, have the same uh, um, ingredients or results. And so, you know, 
that at that point you can either you know recommend the contractors bid those alternates. It's called an alternate, or put it in the, the beginning bid document, and they bid on it from the get go, knowing that there's some cost savings or what's called value engineering efforts up front. And that's something we do uh, very typical. We like to identify all the VE options up front as much as we can because it saves them time as well. Yeah. Well, because it's kind of a living, breathing, somewhat dynamic process as the job rolls on. So having that planned out in advance just makes the project go that much smoother. So as a designer, you are in a position to always be paying attention to the the neatest, the newest, the coolest products that are out there for design. Any favorite building products that you're, that you're really hot on these days? So that's the loaded question. And there are so many great <laughs> products. It is. I mean, it's like, like, like you choosing know. your favorite kid, right? <laughs> yeah. Or your favorite candy. Like I have so many favorite candies. I can't um, but but the products themselves, you know, like we, we really rely on, um, and, and to your question, yes, I do have an answer. But leading up to it, there are so many product types out there that, you know, we just, we always recommend just rely on the consultants, rely on the sales manufacturer and sales reps, because they're the ones that have the latest and greatest knowledge of what's coming out or being rolled out by their manufacturer. And so, you know, if you have one firm that, you know, a lot of firms have only architects, let's say. Right, and they don't actually hire designers because they they a may not be needed or or you know it's something that they can do in house, and that's okay. That's that's a, that's a valid approach. It's you know, but at the same time, there's some knowledge base there that's kind of being disregarded. And contrastingly, you know, uh, on the other side of the coin, you know, architectural and design, it won't fly either if you're only designers. You don't have any potential architects uh, to have that kind of exterior understanding. So relying on them to show you what's new and the best is always a way to go to, to save time for the client and to apply for the, what's appropriate for the project. Now, to your question about products, people love Terrazzo. You know, it's, it's a 100-year it's a product, but people can't always afford Terrazzo. And so, you know, in the past, in the 80s and 90s, they had some, some actual vinyl products and, like, um, uh, quartz products that were, like, put in the glomerate. Um, and they made tile, and it was, it was a beautiful product. Uh, I won't say the name, but it was a beautiful product. But, again, it was looked dated, and it had, so, it had limited application. And I think over the years it's faded out. I'm not even sure if it's available anymore. But new products now are actually uh, quartz chips in a, in a fluid matrix. And, um, you know, it basically it is terrazzo. But it's beautiful. It's got depth. It has the glass. It's fantastic. And uh, because it's a thin application, it goes on with a thin set application like any other ceramic or porcelain. And so you don't have to have that two-inch thick terrazzo anymore. Um, and you can do organic patterns and, 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 and in custom colorways. So for me, you know, our, our most exciting product right now is we, we just love terrazzo tile. We've seen uh, some really interesting terrazzo coatings lately where there's real stone embedded in like an epoxy finish. And I tell you, first of all, when you pick the can up, it's about 12 pounds, right? <laughs> it's all stone. But the stuff's just absolutely beautiful, and it's used as a coating for, for concrete porches and driveways and, and, and stuff like that. We're also seeing a lot of changes in wood products out there. You know, it, it looks like wood, it feels like wood, it cuts like wood, but it's not wood. You know, it's, it's an acrylic or a vinyl or uh, the, uh, the new hybrid stone flooring products that are just incredibly durable, inexpensive, and, uh, and really easy to install. Yeah, so like with those wood products, you know, and they, like you said, they've been around, you know, for, for decades. But every year, you know, a new change is coming out. And so like the woods that are coming out now are, you know, are so much better than I think they, than their grandparents were the version, you know, 20 years ago. Like you can get pre-engineered uh, 
backing for these wood products that have the face of wood. So, yeah, you are getting a real, let's say, wood floor, but it has the pre-engineered substrate. So it's dimensionally stable. It's way less money than real. It's more sustainable because now you're not using the whole tree. You're using a select portion of it. So, you know, that particular material can go further. But then you can even, like, the manufacturers are brilliant. You know, they can even inject uh, an acrylic resin into the backing. So now it's also water resistant. So now you can use it below grade. So it's just fantastic what's coming out with these materials. Well, we've talked a lot about your business and your and your background. As that business evolved, though, Greg, I'm interested to know if there was sort of a distinct moment when you guys saw the need for change and had to shift your services or, or approach in some way. Because I think, you know, in small business and in the remodeling and the new construction, whether you're a developer or a designer, you know, you name it, we always have those moments where it's a bit of a wake-up, but uh, something has has happened, and you're recognizing it and trying to figure out how to solve it. Or maybe you're spotting a new, inf- a new opportunity and need to make a change. Has that happened to you guys as uh, you've uh, developed over these last few years? Well, it, it, it hasn't, quote-unquote, changed you know, right now, but we are seeing the wheel starting to uh, roll a little bit. So because we're still so young and we started you know, pre-COVID, as a virtual setup, uh, we, we, we had discussions way back when, before we even started about, you know, can we satisfy our clients on a purely virtual platform? And the answer is yes. You know, the technology is out there, all the software, you can have teleconferences beforehand, but you still kind of need those brick-and-mortar moments of having interpersonal meetings. And, and we've been able to, to maintain that, you know, either at clients' uh, offices or, you know, at a mutually shared locations because, you know, he's in one office in his town, I'm in one office in mine. And we, we have a shared cloud server, so, you know, we always joke around. We, you know, we dial up and, you know, we talk more than our wives because he has a special ringtone just to make sure, oh, my God, I have to answer that like right now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but in terms of evolving, yeah, we've definitely seen it. So, you know, we definitely will not lose the flexibility and agility that the virtual office has given us. But, you know, with the COVID thing, a lot of people, you know, got thrown into it and they didn't have the ability that we had to already have the infrastructure in place, right? So for for most people, it was a very abrupt change, and it was not a necessarily positive one, right, because of what was happening and and at home, or maybe there was something distracting like the dog or whatever, right? Just those kind of like things that, you know, you didn't have in the office as a distraction. Well, so now the back-to-office push has occurred with a, in a lot of reasons, you know, driven by, you know, uh, end users, but also the, the need for people to want to be around other people and have a collaboration. Now, that's always the, the big buzzword. And, and there's a lot of validity to the word collaboration. You know, it solves a lot of, of potential issues, and that's where a lot of creativity can be drawn from. Absolutely. It's a balancing act, right? I mean, it's be, be, between the – you're kind of balancing the, the speed and efficiency of, of being to do this virtual with the fact that you're an architect, you're a designer. You, people want to meet you. They want to make sure that uh, you're the kind of people that they enjoy hanging out with because they're going to be spending a lot of time hanging out in your work. <laughs> exactly. But it also is, you know, we, we're in a position where we've been needing to hire for a couple of years. And even though we could offer that virtual platform to an employee and we're set up as such we, intentionally, uh, we realized that it would be easier for us to, to coach, train, and oversee our upcoming employees with a brick and mortar. Plus, it gives them a place to go and, you know, experience another environment. So we're realizing, hey, you know, we really start need to start looking at some space. So we've been out there talking to the marketplace, you know, a lot of great realtor associates of ours saying, hey, you know, what do you have? What can you recommend? Here's what we're looking for. So we, we definitely see ourselves moving as a change into more of a, a brick-and-mortar location. 
So with a small company, I'm sure that word of mouth is, a, is an important aspect of marketing. But how else are you finding your projects aside from those that are coming in from, from repeat business? I mean, you got a great-looking website, uh, which we should mention. It's Way Arch Design, Way, W-A-Y-A-R-C-H Design.com. But other than that, how are you guys bringing in the business? Well, uh, well thank you for, for that nice comment. Finding new clients, you know, we've been very fortunate to leverage like I said, past relationships, uh, immediate clients uh, that, that are calling on us, people that thought think of us for something else and go, hey, uh, this isn't my project, but I have a friend that's looking for X. And then, you know, we also do, you know, like uh, LinkedIn is a great platform to basically, you know, see what's happening both within your industry, uh, your peripheral industry, you know, potential clients. And, and we can follow up with uh, in that and like a soft marketing approach. You know, so that's been very good. And, and obviously, all the different uh, platforms, Pittsburgh Business Times is a great uh, resource for what's new and up and coming. And there's so many trade magazines out there, both within our city, but other, other markets as well, that you can really, you know, track and, and then learn from and say, hey, this is something we should, you know, perk our ears up and, and listen to. because This is definitely a trend that, you know, we need to stay at top of. I think one of the mistakes a lot of small business folks make is when they're busy, they don't market. And that's that's the time to market because at some point you're not going to be busy and and then you're way behind the eight ball. So you got to have that pulse. You got to have that consistency, that rhythm of marketing out there. So these kinds of things that you're doing uh, definitely stand up to that. I, I love that you actually said that. One of my strongest mentors, you know, over the over the course of years at, from a couple of firms, he passed away about ten years ago. But he would always say, you know, when you're the busiest that's when you need to market. And it's, it's absolutely the truth because you think, oh, we're fine. But no, that, these jobs are going to be done you know, not too far in the future, and you always have to have that pipeline. So we've been very fortunate and able to you know, keep that backlog of work busy. And, I, and our recommendation for any firm starting out would be to, well, first of all, you can't say yes to everything. I mean, obviously no one wants to do that because that doesn't help the product or the client. But you, you do have to take on those appropriate projects you know, that can uh, keep you gainfully employed, as it were, throughout the process. And the good, great thing about design and architecture, and the thing we always tell our clients is there's so many multiple phases to our process, uh, if, you, if you knew that. So, you know, there's the early conceptual phase, it's called schematic, and then design development, where you get a little more detail. And the construction documents, right, where that's what the contractor builds from, the most details on there, all the scopes captured, and then you have construction administration. So ideally, when you're marketing, you have an understanding of where your different projects are in what phase to, to afford you that ability uh, for business because every phase has a different level of intensity that takes time, right? And something that we're finding uh, that helps now through the speed up the whole process is something called feasibility study. So this is actually before schematic. And basically it's a snapshot of what the project could be and you put it out for pricing. Either you price it in-house yourself with various mechanisms of cost estimating tools, or you reach out to a cost estimating consultant, which we prefer. But that will give the end user, especially right now with with, every, with the supply chain issues being a problem and lead times and cost inflation has been crazy, doing something like this feasibility study gives comfort to everybody, not only to the client, you know, because they want to know what they're going to buy uh, is within budget and it's right at scope. It gives us peace of mind in a sense, because now we know that we're not, we might not get blindsided by uh, a piece of equipment being so far out of whack financially where it wasn't a year ago. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because in the past you would basically just plow forward with the design and then the plans, and then that's when the surprises happen, right? And at that point, you're so far down, it just is a really, it's a big interruption to the process to have to stop what you're doing and figure out, oh boy, I didn't know the widget was going to cost that much. And now you got to figure out another way around and maybe you got to change the design and, and that adds to the costs and to the frustration. So in this case, especially in this very dynamic market that we're in right now, that makes a lot of sense. Hey, before I let you go, I want to ask you about some of your favorite projects. Uh, one that you were citing for us was the O'Hara Township Private Residence. What made that stand out from all the work that you guys have done? Well, I'll tell you, yeah. So one of, you know, we do, like a lot of firms, just a lot of different types of residential. And this was a really nice blend of just functionality, but he wanted some nice design elements in there. But the reason we, I'm, I'm so proud of that project is because it really kind of is indicative of what a lot of clients want with like 10 pounds of program in a five pound can. And so basically, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was, it was very challenging. And it was a, it was a medium footprint composed of a couple of rooms, but he wanted a master bath, a private bath, and then a guest bath. And so we're able to meet his program with the use of sliding doors. Uh, it take up way less space. It offered the privacy that he was looking for, but the public ability, or I should say the, uh, the flow ability for uh, his party guests to go into a separate, a separate space, not going into the room at large. So we were able to accomplish a lot in, in a small footprint, and it took, it took a great contractor to, to actually uh, implement it and to get it all done with the field conditions that were there. And it took, everything had to be coordinated, every, every quarter inch. It was, it, was a, a very, it was a pleasure to work on. It really was. you got to love a client whose priority is a good party space, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and aside from all that, I got to tell you, I saw the photos of the finished project online, and you guys have designed the nicest outdoor fireplace I think I've ever seen. <laughs> you know, Thank you. It, no. like if you had that fireplace, you'd want to build a room around it. It looks so good. Well, again, that was a solution of a program. So he had something in his backyard in that corner that it was like more of an infrastructure piece on the site that he didn't want to have to look at. So we basically positioned the fireplace at that location, which could be seen from most all the deck plus part of the kitchen and the eating space. But then the neat part about that fireplace was because, you know, he said, I typically have, you know, uh, eight to 10 people over at a time. So he's like, okay, that's not necessarily a fire pit around. People flow in and out of conversations. That can definitely be a, a chamfered 45. But the neat part about that fireplace was when he was a child, he was in uh, his, his grandmother's house and his grandmother loved to cook. And the reason we did uh, part of his house and his kitchen and the fire, this fireplace was because he loves to cook. So on the weekends, he would basically cook all his meals for the week, freeze them and un unfreeze them. But he, he got a, a marble slab from his grandmother's kitchen when she passed away. And right. so we were able to incorporate a portion of that slab into the, the outside there. fireplace. So through all these years uh, in business so far, can you tell us about any business challenges that you've had to overcome? And what advice would you give to anybody that's listening who's faced uh, similar situations? Uh, that's a great question. And uh, I'd say aside from building your network uh, as much as you can, uh, for me, I mean, personally, uh, really having a, a more of a business background. I mean, we're doing great. Don't get me wrong. But we learned on the fly, right? Everything right. from the QuickBooks to the management. And, you know, I think if we had a little bit more of a background when we jumped into the tank, things would have gone a little smoother, a little quicker. Not to say that they weren't smooth, but it had more of a more of um, confidence growing faster. And then the same thing for real estate. You know, we're looking for our own property to, to buy. And without having that 
our own real estate background, we're really having to rely more on, on marketplace uh, input from third parties, which, you know, has its own costs associated with it. So, You know, that is uh, so important, what you said about, you know, sort of the, the management side of the business. I think it's typical where, where whether you're an architect or you're a builder, you think that, you know, just because I have this skill set, I can I can go into business with this skill set. And that's not the same thing. Just because you can swing a hammer doesn't mean you can run a business of hammer swingers. And just because you're a great architect and a great designer doesn't mean that you can run an architectural design business because the business aspects, you know, the nuts and bolts, it's going to be there no matter what your business is and it's got to get done. And if you don't have the skill set, you have to figure out how to fill that void or you're going to quickly find yourself uh, in a jam because you you overpromised and underdelivered, and people are going to be mad at you and you're going to be frustrated and you might make financial mistakes. I mean, who knows? But the fact that you recognize that I think is half the battle and can take the steps necessary to make sure that you're addressing it. Yeah, th- thank you. And we've been fortunate. We started this. I actually got, I got some of the best advice I ever got from anybody from a, uh, an associate of mine or a friend of mine who lives down the street. He's the owner of a, of a, um, a subway franchise. And I told him what we were doing, and I said, hey, what advice can you give me starting with, a, with a, a new guy starting out a business with a partner? And he said, control your overhead. And I said, well, tell me about that. And, and basically, you know, just controlling all the soft costs. Make sure you really understand kind of like what your cash flow is before you start to expand. And, and we did that. And we were, we've been so fortunate that we were able to basically, you know, um, really hold on to a lot of our retained earnings in a way as we grew. And then say, okay, now it's time for the family insurance. Okay, now it's time for these kind of critical, you know, third-party soft costs. You know, what a great, what a great example of, of coming from a Subway franchise because you know how they control costs, right? If you ever watched them build a Subway sandwich, you get two pieces of meat, not three, right? It's all very planned out, one slice of tomato. You know, it's like yep. there's no room for error there. They know exactly how far uh, that's going to stretch, and that all that yeah. adds up, right? And it doesn't matter yeah. if you're talking about paper clips or two by fours or uh, tinted blue steel. <laughs> it all it all adds up. Very deliberate, and we've been you know we've been like blessed to basically say, okay, okay, are, are we buying a new computer this month? Okay, we can buy a new computer this month, and you know, and just and and control that that me- that growth mechanism as we as you know as we needed to over over the course of months and years. Greg Newman from Way Architecture and Design Partners. Hey, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for sharing so much about what you guys do and how you got there. And I wish you the best of luck for all your future projects. That's Greg Newman from Way Architecture and Design Partners. Uh, Check out their website at wayarchdesign.com. That's W-A-Y, Arch, A-R-C-H, design.com. Thanks again, Greg. Thank you for having me. Have a great day.